Welcome to the public rally. Social change, however defined, is a concept many take for granted. The fact is, no society has ever remained the same, but oftentimes, social change is avoided because discomfort is the prerequisite, which naturally creates tension with the status quo. But my guest, Marshall Gans, welcomes that tension. His organizing efforts began when he left Harvard early to go to Mississippi in support of the Mississippi Democratic Freedom Party with Fannie Lou Hamer. And he later was a lead organizer for the United Farm Workers under the leadership of Cesar Chavez. Gans returned to Harvard uh, to earn a Ph.D. He is currently a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, an author and founder of Leading Change Network. He may be what the prophet Zechariah had in mind when he talked about Prisoners of Hope. Marshall Gans, welcome to the public reality. Thank you. Happy to be here. Okay. Let's begin by you offering a distillation. What is social change? Oh, boy, now there's one of those, uh, <clears throat> one of those uh, questions that could be uh, the subject for a, a two-semester course, I think. <laughs> uh, I think it depends. I mean, obviously, and I think we tend to use it in, in a positive way, like we tend to imply positive social change. Mm -hmm. But social change can be just the opposite. Uh, it can be negative. And so I think, I think it's important that we get a little more specific about what we mean by social change. Okay. I mean, we can talk about uh, changing understanding of, of uh, public morality, of values. We can talk about changing an economic set of economic arrangements. Well, we well, can then, talk about then, political arrangements. So, well, let's talk know. about the political context, if you if you would, sir. Well, I mean, in political context, uh, it it's it in some ways it's difficult to to disconnect the political from the other two. Okay, uh, because in in a certain sense, politics really can be or ought to be a domain of public morality, uh, and Politics in a democracy is one of the main ways in which we have expected we could manage the concentrations of private wealth that come out of the economic sector. So there's a there's a kind of interaction there. Mm -hmm. From a democratic perspective, uh, positive social change in a political context would mean those things that can enhance the power of equal voice uh, in making public decisions, public choices. But equal voice, not just as a bunch of individuals like um, uh, buying soup or something, public voice engaged in a collective process of learning, uh, of uh, empathy building, uh, and of uh, responsibility. So it's public voice rooted in the value of each person's voice, but mediated through a process of learning and engagement with others so that you get to some understanding of common interest. And I think the closer we get to that, uh, the more positive the social change as respect to politics. And yeah, and I was just going to say, we seem to be going backwards. <laughs> well, I, I was, from, from, from your work, um, your, from, from your long career, is it possible to have social change void of discomfort? In other words, is discomfort a prerequisite for social change. Yeah, I mean, I think that discomfort, you know, people sort of say, I wouldn't be comfortable doing that sometimes when we're trying to learn some new things. 
And to me, that's a sign that that's exactly what you need to do. Because uh, learning is not about comfort, it's about discomfort. Uh, and because it's that which makes us uncomfortable that moves us, inspires us to deal with questions we haven't dealt with. So to me, uh, discomfort is inherent in the process. It's not a bad thing. It's inherent in the process of learning. And comfort just says, hey, everything's cool the way we are. No need to learn anything. No need to change anything. What, what is the, and then ex- extending on that, what, 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 is the, what is the role of power? the power dynamic in, in this social change? Well, I think it's fundamental. I mean, I think that how, how we organize power is really the core question in politics. I mean, you know, in, in economics, maybe how do we organize wealth? And in sort of the moral framework, how do we understand, um, you know, the right thing? What do we mean by that? I think in politics, it's all about power fundamentally. Um, going all the way back to the Greeks, because the fundamental power of the state is coercive. Um, And then the question is, is that, uh, how is that exercised? Is it exercised by one individual on everybody else? Is it exercised democratically? Is it exercised in behalf of the common interest or not? But the the capacity to make laws and enforce them, that's, uh, that's a lot of power. And that's what politics ultimately uh, winds up being its source of power. And now the question is how we get there. And uh, that's where I think we're having a lot of problems. And I think that in some ways, it's a lot of chickens coming home to roost. And what I mean by that is that, you know, our, our constitution constructs a vision of a republic that is really anti-democratic more than it is democratic. Uh, and, and, you know, that comes out of the original negotiations of uh, small states, big states, slave states, and free states. And so how to put together something that could enable them to act together on things like trade and, uh, and uh, security. But at the same time, check change uh, wherever possible. And so it wasn't designed to be a mechanism to adapt and change. It was a mechanism rather to sustain the status quo. There were amendments uh, allowed for, but amendments are very, very difficult to achieve. So specifically what I'm talking about is, um, for example, uh, districts, electoral districts based on first by the post. The one who gets 51% gets 100% of representation. The one who gets 49% gets zero representation. So it exaggerates uh, that kind of, it, it how can I say it marginalizes minority perspectives and points of view in an unhelpful way. The districts are designed by incumbents. Well, you know, there we got the foxes in charge of the hen house, you know, so it's not going to be exactly uh, equality equal. That's why we have so many non-competitive legislative districts all over the place to the extent that they're self-designed. And of course the fiction of of, uh, the allocation of congressional seats to states goes back to the three-fifths rule where white electors were uh, given credit for three-fifths of the number of slaves they had and voted on their behalf. So there was an inherent inequality built into the system from the very beginning. Then you take the Senate. Now the Senate 
we're having a situation where 50% of the Senate represents 18% of the people. That means that, that means that the vast majority of the people are disenfranchised through the Senate. Rhode Island's got two votes. California's got two votes. Jeez, now what, what's that? And we've given it a huge amount of power, which is what we're seeing. And then, and then you have a presidency that is, it's, it's fundamentally imperial. And we're seeing how that works too. There's so much power concentrated in a single individual, in a single position, um, including the, uh, over the sources of, uh, of coercion, uh, you know, the national security. Um, most countries that have adopted the presidential system have had a lot of problems with it. Uh, parliamentary systems tend to work much better because they're more collective and they're more representative. I mean, if you imagine Donald Trump in question period, like they have in, uh, in England or, or in uh, Canada, you know, that's kind of an interesting thing to think about. There's more accountability. And then, of course, the courts. I mean, we have this idea that the courts are going to save us. It seems like the Warren Court was really a big exception historically that historically the Supreme Court has operated more to protect property than people. And I think we're getting back to that. Now, I'm going through this not to say gloom and doom, but to say, unless we recognize the uh, barriers we're up against to try to make this, a, to try to realize the democracy that hasn't yet happened, then we're never gonna get there. So I think we have to have a clear view of what the challenges are, what we have to overcome to, you know, as Langston Hughes talked about, make America the America it must be, that it ought to be, that it needs to be. Right. And then America was never America to me. Uh. That's right. No, I, I, you know, that poem right after Trump was elected, I mean, boy, did it say a lot. I, I yeah, I was reading that poem a lot. That was written 1935, I think. Yeah, 30... I, think, I think you're right. 33, 35, somewhere around there. Um, now, I want to I talk a little bit about you specifically in, in, in your background. You, when you were a young man, you grew up in Bakersfield. Is that correct? Well, I was actually born in, in Michigan. We, we lived in Germany for three years after the Second World War and then in, uh, in D.C. and then moved to Bakersfield when I was uh, eight. Okay. Um, yeah. And so... Um, and then from there, you go to Harvard. I'm assuming there wasn't a large Bakersfield contingent that made it to Harvard Yard that year. Maybe, you know. uh, yeah, not, not much. <laughs> not too much. And boy, was it a shock. I mean, whoo. <laughs> but you leave Harvard early to go to Mississippi. Why? Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of reasons there. I mean, um, I mean, my father was a rabbi. My mother was a teacher. And those years we lived in Germany, he was, a lot of his work was with Holocaust survivors. And actually my fifth birthday party was in a, um, a camp. It was a, they, what they call DP camps, displaced persons. And this was a children's camp. And at first I thought that was kind of cool, you know, a children's party, children's camp for my birthday. Until, you know, I came to realize why it was a children's camp. The parents were gone, they'd been killed. And so the Holocaust was, you know, I was too young to grasp the whole horror, but it was um, a real thing. And uh, my parents, my mother grew up in Virginia. Her parents came from the old country and they had a small store outside the naval base in Norfolk. She grew up with a very strong sense of, um, of what was then called brotherhood, of, of racial and religious equality. 
And so my parents interpreted the Holocaust to me as not being simply about anti-Semitism, but about racism and that racism kills. Uh, and of course, civil rights movement was challenging that. Now, I don't know, there may be some preacher's kids out there in the audience, I don't know. But as a rabbi's kid, you got to go to all the stuff. You're also supposed to be perfect, which is a different set of issues. But I love the Passover seders, which was the, the telling of the Exodus story with food, uh, which was kind of cool. But they would point to the children. They say, you were slaves in Egypt. And I said, I've never been a slave, never been to Egypt. It took me a while to figure out that what it meant was that that story of journey from slavery to freedom was not the property of one people or one time or one place. It's told generation after generation. You kind of have to figure out, are you with the guys with the chariots or are you with those people trying to find their way to a land of promise? Well, civil rights movement articulated itself as a chapter in the same story. And, you know, I think what really did it for me was the young people because, um, as I began to meet people that were working with uh, with SNCC in particular, um, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, you know that was that was something very challenging um, because you know Walter Brueggemann is a Protestant theologian. He yes. wrote a book called The Prophetic Imagination. He talks about the fact that um, a transformational vision occurs at the intersection of two things. One he calls criticality a clear view of the world's pain and its hurt. And the other he calls hope, a sense of the world's promise and possibility. And young people come of age with a critical eye on the world they find and almost of necessity hopeful hearts. And in the young people that I met working with SNCC and around it, I saw that. Um, we were invited to go to uh, Atlanta while I was still at Harvard uh, to a SNCC staff meeting because they discovered that uh, Harvard owned stock in Mississippi Power and Light Company. We were trying to see if we could put some pressure on Harvard. So we'll go to a SNCC staff meeting. It was in Gammon Theological Seminary in Atlanta. And um, I remember, you know, going into the sanctuary where the meeting was, I thought, oh, man, this is going to be like heavy strategy discussion. You know what they were doing? They were having a preach-off. What's a preach-off? Yeah. Who could, who could imitate Dr. King better? There was a spirit of humor and celebration and joy and courage. Jesus, that was attractive. And so, you know, I'm sort of saying to myself, you know, okay, I, I kind of get some of the values involved here. How do I justify then? I want to be part of this. You, you know, when I, when, I, when I look at your work in the 60s, um, from Freedom Summer and then your, your work um, – with United uh, Farm Workers, I mean, yeah. it was in it, it was it the sixties was a unique decade in that um, there was for the entire decade at least one major grassroots movement every year from civil rights to free speech to Vietnam to labor. Any thoughts in retrospect no. what led to this unprecedented thirst for social change that we actually had not had not witnessed before, nor have we witnessed since. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's a really great question. It's sort of like, why did every country in Europe have a revolution in 1848? It's kind of like, you know, 1968 yeah. was one of those years. I mean, that was one of those years. And, you know, I attribute a lot of it. Um, I attribute a lot of it to civil rights because it sort of set the, the path. It was sort of what was unfolding was this struggle for justice it was a struggle. It wasn't like, 
you know, public policy, or it was clear there was a struggle, their power was at stake. And, and it was making progress. It was beginning to, to actually change things. It was very challenging to everybody. I think without civil rights, it's hard to have thought of the, um, see, see the anti-Vietnam, the war movement, um, you know, was broader, certainly because of the draft, I think more than anything else. But the idea of challenging the ways that things were and demanding uh, a, uh, an account, uh, that was coming out of the civil rights movement. And it taught us all. I mean, the early women's movement, uh, a lot of like SNCC activists, like, like uh, Casey Hayden and others, um, you know, wait a second, we're fighting for, for equal rights. Well, what about us? Mm -hmm. So there was this, I don't know. So part of it, I think, was that. I think part of it was, you know, a new generation coming of age. Um, certainly in the South, the first real uh, generation of, of uh, college-educated Black youth was a crucial part of what sparked the civil rights movement, along with the return of veterans from World War II, who, you know, thought they should enjoy the rights they fought for, uh, along with the Cold War that was going on with the Soviet Union. And government found it hard to justify hey, democracy is great when it's not so great. So there was a lot going on. And of course, you know, if you look toward, of, toward the more in the context of, say, a place like Harvard, or there was also a new generation coming along. And, um, you know, that was resisting being sort of programmed into, you know, the Little Boxes song, you know, Malvina Reynolds wrote this song about Daly City and in the Bay Area, mm -hmm. Little Boxes on the Hell Side, Little Boxes made of ticky tacky, you know, uh, and there was kind of a resistance to the politics of conformity uh, of the 50s, that you were supposed to be a certain way. A woman was supposed to be this, you're supposed to be. So here's this challenge going on coming from the African-American community. And then others are being told, no, no, you're supposed to be like this. And, um, you know, it's interesting, the free speech movement, which preceded Vietnam, um, I don't know if you're familiar with this, my, my roommate in uh, Mississippi in Freedom Summer was Mario Savio. Oh, really? Yeah. Will, and, will you take a moment to tell people who Mario Sa Savio is? Yeah, Mario was, uh, grew up in Brooklyn. He was uh, a very uh, philosophical uh, Catholic struggling with what all that meant. Uh, wound up uh, doing freedom schools in Mississippi with us, went back to Berkeley, uh, to UC in, uh, in 64, and um, set up a table to raise money for SNCC and CORE, uh, like selling buttons. And the this was at Sather Gate, UC Berkeley. So then um, the university decides that, that you can't do that. So they shut down the table. So then Mario start, they start a protest and say, wait, you can't shut down, you know, and pretty soon, I mean, this little thing morphed into a really huge thing, which was a whole challenge to the university. You know, you can't program us. You can't tell us what to be. We, we have rights. We got to decide too. And that, that, and the irony is that Mario suffered from a terrible stutter. He, he really, and in this free speech movement, he, he, he lost his stutter. It's like he freed his own speech in the struggle for free speech and became this incredibly articulate um, speaker. 
you know, uh, uh, articulator of what the thing was all about. And that, that became, that was before Vietnam. And so there was civil rights, there were the students, there was the women, and then along comes Vietnam. And uh, there was pretty fertile ground there to, uh, to challenge the war, given the fact that the draft was affecting certainly all young men, uh, their loved ones, um, and anybody that couldn't stay in college to get a deferment uh, like President Clinton <laughs> or get a, a physical uh, exemption like President Trump. I mean, uh, so you can sort of see how one thing builds on another, builds on another with different roots. One thing I'll say about it is that, that despite everything that was involved and de despite all the despite the, the, the violence, the, the repression, all that, there was a sense that history is moving in our way. In other words, there was a sense of hopefulness that really was, even when uh, Dr. King was assassinated, when Bobby Kennedy was assassinated, same year, when, Doc, when, when, uh, when Malcolm was assassinated, I mean, there still was this forward kind of sense. And now it seems to be uh, so much more about resisting something that is horrible rather than building something that is good. I, I don't want to exaggerate that, but it's almost like, I don't know, there, there's, a, there's a different kind of mood, uh, I guess. I don't know. What do you think of that? You were around. <laughs> barely. I, barely. Uh, you, you know, I, I, there, was, there was definitely something uh, in, in, in the ethos um, that makes that decade um, stand out. I, I think that you touched on earlier the um, what I call the sort of the June Cleaver, June and War Cleaver of the fifties. I think November twenty second, nineteen sixty three, sort of took yeah. some took some of that bark away. That when we started to question things in a way that weren't questioned before, I, you know. So I, I think it was a confluence of things, but um, I certainly. Don't have the the, uh, the the wherewithal. Most of what I know, I've read. So, <laughs> no, but the, but pointing to the assassination of President Kennedy, I mean that's spot on uh, because that was one of the things I think because I was here in my junior year when that happened, and you know everybody remembers exactly where they were, and you know it it sort of it was something that you couldn't have imagined was supposed to happen, and it happened. I don't know. It was like, nobody's going to take care of this for us. You know, you can't trust that. We've got to take care of it ourselves. I, you know, sitting there all those nights watching TV and watching Cronkite talk about it in the funeral and all that, it had, it had a certain kind of, I think what you said, it was kind of a breach um, that there was a lot more going on. And I think, I think that's a really important point. Um, but, you know, these things evolve. I mean, the other thing was that the Cold War required American leadership at least to speak in terms of democracy and all the rest of it. And so it did offer a leverage you could use to say, hey, you're talking about this, but this is reality. So there, this is a contradiction. You know, nowadays it's... Uh, you know, well, certainly since Trump, I mean, nobody even, it's, it's, it's such a morally bankrupt kind of moment. 
you, you mentioned that, Cold, you mentioned Cold War. I, I, re, I recall several years ago we had Jack O'Dell on the show. Yeah. And Jack said to me uh, the problem that they within the Civil Rights Movement would have with Kennedy was he could go to Berlin, each behind Berliner. I, I am a Berliner. Um, right. And the way Jack said it was he actually went two blocks from where Hitler worked and told everybody he was a Berliner, but yeah. couldn't but would not go anywhere in America and say he was a Negro. And that was sort of the problem they had with Kennedy. <laughs> yeah. No, it's like, um, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that stimulated the March on, March on Washington, 1963, <clears throat> which was not called the I Have a Dream speech. It was no. called the Fierce Urgency of Now. And uh, no, exactly. Exactly. And we used to have this sign in Mississippi that was, there's a town in Mississippi called Liberty. There's a department in Washington called Justice. Hmm. And uh, it was sort of like, hey, um, so what's happening here? I mean, hypocrisy has been a major uh, sin of the powerful, at least as far back as Jesus, because uh, that's what he's challenging them about. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Harvard professor, author, and organizer Marshall Gans, and we're talking about uh, this hour about social change. Um, Marshall, I want to talk specifically about... Uh, one, a course in particular that you teach at Harvard, I would imagine the syllabus was formulated largely from your organizing work, and it's public narrative, leadership, storytelling, and action. Now, at first glance, at least to me, the there's a natural tension between public narrative and storytelling. I mean, who's public narrative or who's, and who's telling the story? Right. I, I'd like to have you talk about the origins of the course and how important is storytelling to social change? Yeah, I guess there's a couple of ways to, to respond to that. I started teaching a course on organizing here first, um, in which it was based on five practices, uh, uh, five organizing practices, relationship building, storytelling, strategizing, structuring, and action. And that was because the courses I teach are not theory, they're practice, they're, they're, uh, they're in practice, because you don't you don't learn organizing by reading about it. you got to do it and then you reflect on what you're doing and that's how they're designed both online and offline uh, we do them but there was so much energy around the the question of narrative well the question of narrative was to, and storytelling was around motivation and and you know it's sort of you know we, we tend often to look at things like leadership in terms of oh you got to be a great strategist you know it's all in the head but in reality, it's often much more fundamentally in the heart. I mean, because the question of, you know, on one hand, how do you challenge people to step out of the ordinary, to take risks, to, to find sources of courage? At the same time, how do you find your own sources of hope as opposed to fear, your sources of solidarity as, as opposed to isolation, your sources of self-worth as opposed to self-doubt? So there is a whole heart dimension uh, to the way we approach leadership and organizing, as well as a head dimension, as well as a hands dimension. It's sort of, you know, cognitive, emotional, and, and behavioral. Or it's kind of like, you know, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? What are you doing? As sort of necessary components. So <clears throat> now I'd always been interested in narrative because growing up Jewish, you grow up, you grow up in the story much more than the place. Place doesn't mean too much. It certainly didn't historically for most, most last 2000 years. What meant was 
oh, there's a story. Every holiday is another chapter in the story. And you sort of think Abraham is your grandfather or something. It's, it's a very, very narrative-based understanding of identity. Um, and then, you know, the movements I got into, geez, so Reisman was, you know, speaking the language of faith deeply. I mean, uh, and, you know, the church was so important, the whole language, the sources of courage and hope, testimony was what I would now call a story of self. I mean, it's sort of how I was blind, but now I see. I was afraid. Now I found my courage. It was happening. It was like storytelling at the individual level, at the communal level, and then at the, at the, at the national level as well. That's what, what King is doing in the March on Washington. He's telling a, he's sort of telling a white story, a black story, and an American story, or at least he seems to be trying to do that. So the farm worker movement was very similar. It was rooted in Mexican cultural tradition, Roman Catholic, and a lot of those cultural resources, we were always telling stories. And so when I came back to school, I wanted to focus first on strategy, which I wrote my dissertation about. But in doing that, I realized that motivation is a fundamental condition for strategy. So David, the David and Goliath story, it doesn't start with David figuring out to use stones instead of a sword. It starts with David saying, this is an outrage. It's an insult to the ranks of the living God. By God, I'm gonna go do this, despite his brothers telling him, don't be a protruding nail, you know, don't do it. So there's a, there's a deep connection between the, the commitment, the motivation, the heart, that creates conditions under which strategy, figuring out that you need a stone, not a sword, in order to defeat the, the giant comes in. So I was planning then to, to do work on narrative because it, I also, I should say that um, while I was working my PhD, I, I wound up in a seminar with a union psychologist uh, in which it was called the neurophysiology of myth. And it was about the connection between the way the brain works and the way stories work. Now that made some connections for me that were really, really helpful. I mean, we went back and read stuff starting with Gilgamesh. I mean, it was like, uh, it was very, very um, interesting. So I was interested in this. I had started a reading project with a colleague here where we were sort of rereading Genesis, but from a narrative perspective, trying to find the roots of social justice values in it. And so, in 2003, uh, my wife died, the end of 2003, of leukemia. And so then I was off uh, on leave, and I'd committed to teach a course on narrative when I came back. So uh, it was good to have that. I mean, that break was very important because I was working on my own narrative, you know? Mm -hmm. And so then when I came back, I said, well, we'll try this. But the, the, the framing of it was always, this is storytelling as a leadership practice. And the understanding of leadership that it was rooted in was three questions posed by the first century Jerusalem scholar, Rabbi Hillel, who said when someone asked him, what do I do with my life? He says, three questions to ask yourself. If I am not for myself, who will be for me? It's not a selfish question. It's meant to be self-regarding. There's a level of self-awareness required to lead, to be able to actually see others. But then the second question is, if I am for myself alone, what am I? Because to be a who, a human being, and not a thing, a what, is to recognize we exist in relationship with others in the world and our capacity to realize our 
objectives is wrapped up with the capacity of others to realize theirs. And finally, he says, ask yourself, if not now, when? It's not about jumping into moving traffic. It's recognizing, it's a caution against what Jane Adams called the snare of preparation. Just another year of strategic planning, we'll have the perfect plan, we'll go implement it, the world will totally conform to our expectations, except it never happens. Or just another graduate degree is what you can get here. I'll have all the answers. Well, that doesn't happen either. The point is that rarely can we learn to do well what we want to do until we actually begin to do it. And, and so getting into so that understanding flows from action rather than preceding it. And if we can't find the courage to take the risks involved in action because the future is uncertain, then we're never going to lead or grow or learn. So for me, the interaction of the self with the other with action is sort of a fundamental way of framing this stuff. So in thinking about how to do this narrative work, and narrative is really fundamentally about, if, if you break down a, a, a story, at the core of a story is a plot, a character, and a moral. And what makes a story a story is like if I say, um, you know, uh, uh, before, before we started this conversation, I was reading a book, and then I had something to eat, and then we started talking. That's not very interesting. But if I say, oh, you know, I almost didn't make it to this conversation on time because, you know, I, I, was, I was at this other place, and I had to get the car to come back, and the car was gone. And then I said, holy cow, how do I? Now it gets interesting. And it gets interesting because there's a breach in what's expected. And it's that moment that we begin to pay attention. And we identify with the protagonist of the story. Because we can identify, we feel what's going on. We're not just understanding, you know, as, a, as an intellectual proposition. We're feeling it because we feel some of the fear. We feel some of the, the challenge. And we also learn where the protagonist gets the, the emotional resources to deal with it. And that takes us to values, which are the emotional resources that are drawn on by the protagonists. And so we walk away with a moral that isn't so much haste makes waste. We've, we've experienced a way in which haste made waste or in which the opposite. So the moral is to the heart, not to the head. And so if you think of, of, of narrative as being essentially about the problem of agency, how do we confront threats and turn them into challenges? How do we, you know, because the unexpected, that which we're not prepared for, which is a part of human life, how do we, when those breaches happen, how do we resist the fear that they can inspire and move over to uh, turning it into a, a instead of a threat from which we run into a challenge that we embrace. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that comes down to how we find the sources of hope, the sources of solidarity. The so and so that's what narrative teaches. Okay. So in using it for public narrative, then just to, just to wrap this, a story of self then is how uh, people can learn to communicate to others why they've been called to what they've been called to mm. uh, in a deep way, an experiential way. A story of us is how can we bring alive values we share based on experience that we've shared? And a story of now is how do we turn the current moment into a narrative moment, a moment in which we're confronted with a threat, 
a need to turn it into a challenge, uh, find the sources of hope to do that, and figure out what the choices are we have to make to move forward. So that, in a in a nutshell, is kind of the the approach. Um, I want you to do me a favor now. I, w- I would like for you to make the historical connection between Cisse Poete in the early seventies and Yes We Can in two thousand eight. Well, Cisse Poete, um, Cisse Poete began in uh, Phoenix, Arizona, uh, in nineteen seventy two. Uh, we were in Phoenix doing a campaign to re- uh, well to protest the passage of a law that would have taken away the right to boycott to farm workers. Uh, Arizona had this awful governor and um, they passed this law or the the deal was to pressure him to not sign the law. So Caesar had begun a fast in South Phoenix. That'd be Caesar Chavez. Yeah, Caesar Chavez had started to fast in the community center south of, uh, in South Phoenix. And so a number of us, Dolores, myself, uh, Caesar's brother, Richard, uh, Leroy Chatfield, uh, were on our way over there. And we got to Phoenix and we were having a meeting the second night we were there. And I remember uh, Dolores, we were talking about how do we organize the whole city? How do we organize the whole place to support this fast? And Dolores was saying, God, you know, every place I go, it's no se puede, no se puede. We can't do it. It can't be done. It can't be done. And in the middle of that reflection was someone, I don't know who, says, no, but it's got to be si se puede. And so, oh, si se puede. Yes, it can be done. Yes, we can. That sort of came out of it. So then in in New Hampshire, in 2008, and eight, when Obama lost the primary, and he gave probably one of his best speeches. Uh, in the campaign, people had been talking, there was a Latino um, a Latino vote dimension to the campaign that I was involved with with others. Uh, and uh, we'd had four Latino Camp Obamas in different parts of the country. And so there was the um, this uh, Si Se Puede current. And it was like, well, wait, in English, that's, that's yes, we can. Okay, yes, we can. So in cool ways, these kind of unpredictable, neat things happen. And that was a neat thing. <laughs> Professor Marshall Gans, I, I, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with me today on The Public Reality. The Public Reality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicreality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicreality.org. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes as well as SoundCloud. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the Paul McRally at their studios. The Paul McRally is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Paul McRally, I'm Byron Woods. (laughs) 